Hello, and welcome from the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn. Join us this week as Pastor John preaches on the seven words of baptism and gives a reminder as to what this sacrament means for believers. We're actually uh, just, um, we just completed, for those of you that are new this morning or visiting, we just completed a long series through this last school year through the whole uh, book of 1 Corinthians. And that completed last week, and we are going to be, uh, you know, in another week or two, um, and through most of the summer, looking at various parables of Jesus, something that I haven't preached on in a long time. But uh, I thought that this morning, uh, in this in-between stage, that uh, I would take the time to uh, talk a little bit and do a little bit of a refresher on baptism. We reference that a lot around here. Scott's already talked about it a little bit this morning. But we don't often devote, uh, you know, a Sunday message to, to the topic. And in case you wonder, like, who, am, who in my mind am I, I thinking about when I uh, give this message? Um, you know, it's for everybody sitting in the room, obviously. But, uh, you know, primarily in my mind, I was thinking uh, those of us that have been baptized. I want it to be for all of us that, uh, a little bit like a refresher course, uh, a reminder of some significant ideas that apply to every baptized disciple. Uh, Janine, uh, who's out with Sunday School this morning, my, my wife, she's a registered nurse, and I know that a, a bare minimum, she has to like re-kind of certify herself with uh, CPR, but I think the College of Nurses require uh, even more, um, you know, record keeping of ongoing training to refresh herself in the basic principles of nursing. Um, I, I would like to look at baptism with seven different word pictures this morning. I don't get nervous that there's a seven-point uh, sermon coming up here this morning. I'm going to try to keep moving very quickly. But, uh, you know, seven ideas that will refresh the, uh, our, our, our commitment to, our understanding, our remembrance of things that we signed up for on our, on our big day. Uh, some of you... Some of us uh, may have um, completed a university or a college degree at some point and, and received a diploma. And uh, you remember in that moment, uh, you know, maybe they put a, um, a loop of cloth around your head or something, and then they quote some line at the end of granting you this degree, and the line says, with all its rights, privileges, and obligations. And that's probably the last time you ever thought about that line. I just, I had to look it up on my diploma just to remember how it was worded when somebody said that to me, you know, 40 years ago or whenever it was. Um, well, what about baptism? What are the rights, privileges, and obligations? And, and probably too often we focus only on the event of baptism. And when you think about it, the event, the actual event of baptism only takes a few short seconds, at least when it's done safely. Um, you know, it, it, it's not a long process, and, uh, but it's meant to be a marker. It's meant to be a, a milestone that speaks to us from, for the rest of our lives, long after the water's dried and the congregation has left the room. I came across a beautiful little book uh, that was written at the start of COVID um, by a Baptist scholar from uh, California, J.W. Davidson. And, uh, you know, in fairness, a lot of, uh, especially Baptist uh, books on uh, baptism, I could probably do a quick little book report, and they, to condense it down, it usually goes like this, baptizo means immerse, Jesus said to do it, what's your problem? So we want to go a little wider than that as we think about some of the significance of what is, is said and thought about and inferred by baptism. And so my seven words that I'm going to use, I just want to let you know I'm stealing it uh, out of her book. Um, and, and I, I really like them for, uh, 
just kind of uh, opening up our minds a little bit to um, the idea that some really big theology happens in baptism. And I said that right. I said happens in baptism. A theology that happens. So before we even start, I want to unpack that a little bit. Scott reminded us this morning, we only have two ordinances, um, you know, in in the local church. And and that's very interesting when you think about that. Because we tend to elevate, um, you know, ideas and thoughts and philosophies and mental assent to propositions and statements of faith. And meanwhile, God drops into our lap these two things. Two things that we're supposed to have ideas about. I'm going to talk about some of those ideas today. But they're primarily two things that we're supposed to do. So, so God gives us things to do. It's, it's an embodied theology. I, I, I got that term from uh, Dr. Davidson in my reading this week. And I love that. Embodied theology for embodied souls. But this whole idea of it's something that we actually do. That's far more pervasive an idea in, in Orthodox Christianity than we tend to really kind of acknowledge or, or remind ourselves. If you think of the Great Commission, Jesus said, go, which is an action word, that's something you're supposed to do, go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to remember all the things that I said. No, I messed up that last line on purpose. It wasn't just teaching them everything I said. The, the, the closing line was teaching them to obey everything that I've said. Um, that's a pretty powerful idea. And uh, in the uh, New Living Translation, it's actually worded, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. So, so back to our seven words. What, what is taught in something that's just a very high-touch, visible act of baptism? Uh, going under the water and back up. The, the act, the acting, um, is going under and coming up, but what's the message of the performance? You know, a good play has a theme, has an idea that it's trying to get across. It's just not a bunch of random action and dialogue. There's tend to be a genuine message. Well, what's, what's the message? What's the theme of the act? The first word I want you to think about is delighting. And think about baptism and its connection with delighting. And maybe get you thinking about your own, your entire life story. Think about your own entire life story. What are your big days? The big days. The delightful days. I, I thought about this and I, and I thought, you know, they've changed. I, I've, hit, I've had 60 of these years now on this earth. When I was younger, let's just say pre-high school, um, you know, what, what were my big days? If you had asked, you know, 13-year-old me, what were your really big, delightful days? Well, they'd be simple things, but they were memorable, high def. You know, I thought of uh, the day I manipulated my parents to pick up a puppy, you know, down in the basement. Hey, Dad, here's a dog in the paper. It's free. Well, go ask your mother. You go upstairs. Hey, Mom, can we go pick up this dog? Dad said it's okay. And before they figured it all out, we were on the way home with a puppy, and it was too late to take her back. And, but that was a big day. I can remember the day. I can remember my machinations to pull off that, uh, that thing. You know, I remember getting a lead in the school play, which was the Wizard of Oz, and I was the Tin Man. And it was a big thing. I remember, and, it was, and then as you get older, they're, they're bigger things, you know? You're, you think of your wedding day. You think of the arrival of your children. And those days are so ripe with memory that you can remember the lighting. You can kind of remember the atmosphere. And it's so easy to go back to that big day. 
Well, there was a day like that for God. And, and you could say for the entire Trinity. If you have a Bible, you can look in Matthew chapter 3. That's where we read about the baptism of Jesus. Um, in, uh, in Matthew chapter 3, especially uh, a couple of verses, um, let me just get there myself. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. That phrasing from, in Matthew's gospel is really meant to trigger a memory of a very old passage of Scripture from the prophet Isaiah. And there's this passage where we hear God saying, look at my servant whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. There's Matthew's idea of the dove descending on Jesus. He will bring justice to the nations. How, how amazing would it be to get those kind of reviews from the most high God? Could you have more warmth, height, or weight than, than that moment when Jesus came up out of the water and Matthew describes that scene as a fulfillment of Isaiah's words? You know, people, John was out there in the wilderness preaching this message of repentance. Get ready, the king is coming, repent, the kingdom is at hand. And people were coming out uh, from all levels of status in society and on the banks of the Jordan River and they were having a downward move. They were going down into that water and being, being baptized in obedience to the word of God coming from John. And when Jesus submits to that same thing, uh, li listen how Mark describes it. Mark says, as Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly beloved son. You bring me great joy. God split the heavens to come down and put that affirmation on his chosen son, Jesus. Well, think about that in our own baptism. I think sometimes the resistance people have to the idea of baptism, maybe it's partially a subconscious resistance to, to such ideas of God delighting me in that way. And it's like, that's, that's not for me. That's for like that's for other, you know, a lot more spiritual people that have got it all together and all of those kinds of things. And that's never really meant to be the proclamation that happens in our baptism. It's so associated with God's pleasure in Jesus Christ that by faith in him, we can not only know the Son of God, but become known as sons of God, that he takes great delight in us. The gospel tells us, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. What a, what a first word in baptism that it, we can remember, that we can think about the significance of that big day of ours when we were delighted in him, given the right not only to know his beloved son, but by faith in him to become beloved sons. My second word's a little more grim, and that's baptism as, as dying. Baptism is, is about dying. And uh, I'm very sure that, that uh, maybe that's another reason the whole thing is often resisted. I, 
I know enough as a pastor about funerals and such things and conversations that I have to have with people, sometimes about their imminence and impending death that, that they're actually able to prepare of, or we've seen recent situations where someone is blindsided by the loss of a loved one. And I have a fair amount of experience that people have a real aversion, an avoidance about talking about their own death especially. You know, many people put off planning their wills, power of attorney, many other practical parts of something that will happen to each and every one of us. So, so we have this aversion to death kind of wired into us. You know, we, we do like to just kind of think about surviving, even though it's there for all of us. But then a flip side of that is nothing clicks, clicks on streaming news like fatalities. Uh, I wonder what percentage of movies involve death in the plot lines. Action movies in particular, really high mortality rate. I had this friend in college that had a bit of a morbid habit that he would go to like the Rambo series and then out loud he would count out numbers with uh, every time somebody was killed in the movie and it got pretty ridiculous. And you think about that, you know, Janine and I just finished 11 seasons of Vera. That's like on our BritBox subscription. It's like a better made version of Murder, She Wrote. You remember that one? Like... The last thing you'd want to do is live in a town where Angela Lansbury lives. You know, Cabot Cove was like Murder City, USA. But we have this whole weird thing where we have this aversion to death, yet a fascination with it, you know, on either side. Um, we're an odd bunch when it comes to that way. Listen to what Romans 6 says. Well, then it's, it's in the middle of a long, ongoing passage, so I'm just going to parachute right in on it. It's not the greatest way to handle Scripture, but we're on a theme this morning. And Paul's in this dialogue, says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? He's, he's talking to people who's like, well, it doesn't really matter what you do because, you know, it's all God's grace and I've been saved and God's called me his beloved son so I can do whatever I want now. Paul says, of course not. Since, listen to these words, since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Jesus Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we've been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. And think about these lines and think about the context of who they were written to in the period of history that they were written. And they were written to the churches in Rome. When Rome was under the thumb like no other city was, but because they had most of the world under the thumb of the Roman imperial government. And this is just one generation after Jesus' painful crucifixion the churches are meeting in Rome in a very dangerous place to be proclaiming yourself as a Christian. It, we're refusing to bow to Caesar as Lord could bring you a whole lot of hurt. Uh, I read a par book, uh, a line in the book on uh, parables as I'm getting ready for our next series. And here's what this quote said about salvation. Salvation is free, but it will cost you your life. Salvation is free, but it'll cost you your life. That's something that's that's pictured in baptism. Um, when we were baptized, we entered into his death. We identified ourselves with it. We acted it out physically, bodily. And, and often in life, we can forget that we've done that, and we can charge up the paddles and try to resuscitate a life that we died to. That's part of our past. 
that Christ's power on the cross and his death and resurrection enabled us to break free from that life. So we're not to try to resuscitate the old life. We're to live in that new life because we died. We were reminded of that when we reflect on our baptism. But there's another hopeful word, and that's baptism and birthing. And now we're in John chapter 3. That's the famous passage where John is going to have, Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus, who comes at night, a a really good living, highly educated religious leader, and he wants to have this conversation with Jesus. He's like, we recognize, Jesus, that you're a pretty big deal here, and you're something special, and, and he wants to talk to him, and he wants to, like, learn from him, and they have this famous conversation. But uh, he says, we know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And Jesus, bang, really does a tight turn. And he says, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Thump. Right in front of him. If you read all 12 verses of, uh, first 12 verses of this chapter, you'll, you'll get this whole conversation. In verse 5, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and of the Spirit. And it's generally bad form. I'm not making a point that Jesus was exactly talking about baptism when he said born of water. People debate that all the time where Jesus is talking about, well, you know, everybody's born of water when they're born, the water breaks, all of those ideas, but then they also have to be reborn as the Spirit. Um, Well, I want to kind of hold on to the whole picture and the conversation that he's having with Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus gets very literal. We're on Mother's Day here. He gets very literal about the whole idea of being born. Um, and uh, he, he's trying to imagine how somebody could kind of go through the whole birth process over again. And uh, I think that his misunderstandings are written for our benefit because what Jesus is talking about is a complete redo. That, that when we're baptized, one of the things that we're talking about is we've gone through a complete redo, spiritually speaking. A, a whole new start is needed that only God can accomplish. That comes through very clearly in John chapter 3. Only God can accomplish this thing that Jesus says we must have in order to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus, uh, like I said, when he says um, born again, I believe one of the problems with a lot of sermons on what it means to be born again are given by people like myself that have never given birth. (laughs) You know, hey, everybody in this room was once born, but let's face it, a smaller percentage of us have ever given birth. And and there's a lot of uh, missed ideas here, especially in the first century, that that being born was a life and death situation. Pretty high mortality rate, pretty, uh, uh, it 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 was a joyful experience, but it was also a very dangerous and messy one. I think Romans 8 picks up on that. Listen to some of these words from Romans chapter 8. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Now when Paul's writing this, I think those of you that have actually given birth to a child think, okay, now somebody's getting it here. Uh, groaning as in the chain, pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. 
So when we're lowered and raised up from that water, we're admitting our need for that redo. (laughs) Only God can do this, and we're proclaiming in front of witnesses, I I need this too. In fact, when when we went through that, we were counting on it. When we reflect back on it, we compare it to being born the first time, we realize none of us were born as full-grown, mature adults. Those of you that have small children at home are reminded of that every day. And now you can see yourself in your own children and you think, boy, my parents did a lot of work to get me to this point. And so when we remember that about our baptism, we remember also that we're every day now living into, growing into this baptismal living. And we're reminded of that rebirth back then. Next word is belonging. Baptism and belonging. In Ephesians chapter two, we read this. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. There's that identity thing I've been talking about. Uh, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Citizenship ceremonies. Think about those. Some of you have participated in them. Um, I've had a few friends who have kind of gone uh, the other way. I primarily think about people becoming citizens in Canada, but I've known a number of Canadians that have been citizens, usually south of the border, and eventually they become American citizens. I'm pretty sure that anybody that goes through that process of citizenship probably spent a fair amount of time thinking about what they were doing. Because they're changing allegiances, right? They're, they're switching flags. They're, 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 they're walking away from something that had been a big part of their identity, and now they're identifying with another whole uh, reality. And, and again, I've, I've already hinted at it. In New Testament time, Rome's Caesar claimed worship as Lord. That Greek word, kurios. When we, we read so many times in the New Testament, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, proclaiming Jesus is Lord. We, we really should really hear that as a contrast between the word on the street that Caesar is Lord. <laughs> it was a very controversial thing to be proclaiming loudly an allegiance to a different king. In, in fact, uh, even to people in Rome, Peter and Paul are saying Jesus was the true Lord of all. With, with Rome's military might pitted against, this is a quote from my book, with Rome's military might pitted against Jesus' seemingly naive witnesses, the contest looked ridiculously uneven. It was, but 2,000 years of history shows that it was Caesar, not Jesus, who was overmatched. In fact, doing the famous story in Acts with uh, the house of Cornelius, you know how that one starts? Peter sitting on the rooftop and he's been fasting and he starts to imagine food spinning around in the sky. That's what, that's what would happen to me if I'd been fasting. And then God really clearly says, I want you to go to the house of Cornelius and preach the gospel there. To the, he's not only a Gentile, we usually grab onto that because it's an important part in the story of the early church when the apostles had to be kind of torn away from their ethnic view of the people of God and said, no, go preach this message to a Gentile named Cornelius. But Cornelius was also a Roman officer. A Roman officer. Now, there would be a high amount of uh, submission to Caesar expected of a Roman officer. And this is the message sent to a Roman officer. 
When he gets there, this is the message of peace he sent to the Israelites by proclaiming the good news through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. We think back on our baptism and going down into that water, we're proclaiming uh, allegiance to a different Lord. What lords has Jesus challenged and, and dethroned in your life? Because they're always campaigning for us to put them back on the pedestal of our life and, and start worshiping them again. But we're not only baptized out of allegiance to one, we're baptized into something, into the community of the people of God, the ones Christ died to enable a new covenant to be made. It, it creates the existence of a people of God from all of the different nations. And that becomes our new identity and this whole idea of belonging. When we look back at our baptism, we remember that in so many ways, our lives are not our own. We gave up our free agent status on that day. We pledged allegiance to one Lord. But, but it's not just me and this one Lord. We're, we're now part of and citizens of this group of disciples. Next one's a little more strange. Baptism, I want you to think about baptism and flooding. There are many objects. Uh, there are things like the temple. There are things like the promised land. There are uh, inanimate objects that are still characters in the Bible that symbolize all kinds of things. In the waters, the deep, the seas, the oceans, so often in Scripture, these are dangerous they're an overwhelming power. When God creates the world, it's a big deal when he separates the water from the earth because that's something that men have proven over and over again when they build too close to the water or in a low-lying area that we can't control this thing. So when God separates the water from the earth by his mighty breath, that's a big deal. But it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. Uh, so in Isaiah chapter 43, we read this promise from God to his people. When you pass through the waters, we think of the Exodus at that point, right? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. That's, that's this dangerous, overwhelming idea that we don't have to fear. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. We're more familiar with our fear of fire necessarily than the fear of water. A lot of us have learned how to swim. We think it's relatively harmless, and then all of a sudden, every once in a while, there's a fatality, right, from a riptide or flooding, and we realize that's a pretty powerful thing. Here's some more words from uh, the New Testament, though, and these are words from Peter in 1 Peter. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. Hold on to that idea, because it's going to come up later in a famous story. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. So he went and preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago. And here's the story. When God patiently waited patiently while Noah was building his boat... Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism. Again, until this week, I never really thought about flooding and baptism in, in this light, which now saves you. Uh, I don't, I, this, I want to set you up. I'm, I don't mean this to sound funny, so I just want to warn you ahead of time. Total immersion wasn't a saving thing in the flood story. 
People were immersed, but it was in judgment. And Peter's now grabbed this picture and said, but now these waters save you. They're a picture of our salvation. Not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It's effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna use this first Peter passage in my next point as well about bathing, but for now, notice the flooding idea. Those waters revealed who had faith and who didn't. In, in Genesis, the flood revealed who had faith and who did not. Think of Noah. He didn't build an ark and then suddenly hear a word from God that there was gonna be a flood. It was like, oh, well, that's convenient. I have this big boat. No, there was this word from God and Noah, in obedience and faith in the word that came from the Lord, went on, we think, for a century, building this giant object lesson, right? By the time he built his massive object lesson, we read elsewhere that he had been a preacher of righteousness. And when he and his family walked on board, on board the worst-smelling couple's cruise ship ever, and God closed the door, and everyone on earth experienced the judgment, the only way anyone would have been saved was to have repented and believed Noah's message. However, that one boatload were not harmed in the water and were brought safely home. By the way, Noah's name literally means rest. So throughout scripture, the waters represent danger, a power that you can't control. Uh, and a major, in the, if you read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, so often this word ruach, or spirit, or wind. It's used in all these different areas. When God creates Adam, he breathes this into him. The animals are animated by that same breath of God. If, if, you're, a, if you're a human or an animal and you don't have that breath, you're not alive. And so breath of God in creation is so crucial, but breath for us to have life is so crucial. The fear of water is really drowning, right? And here in this, again, it's, we're symbolizing something very quickly, but to be lowered down into that water. We really are meant to see a, a burial in this and a flooding in this whole situation. If you remember the, the George um, Floyd uh, murder from a number of years ago, it, one of the things that just really hit most of our hearts was when, when we heard that quote, I cannot, I can't breathe can't breathe. And no matter what you think about that whole situation, you got to be a pretty heartless person to not think of the fear. And we can all relate to that. I can't breathe. Um, when we see a baptismal tank or pool, we should also see a coffin. It's where we practice a flood. Embodied theology and identify ourselves with Jesus' submission and obedience. Jesus literally obeyed to death. And then he was raised. One of those things he did, and one was done to him. Um, next word is bathing, baptism and bathing. We've already hinted at it from our Peter passage. I have to keep moving here, and we're almost done. There, there were already baptisms in the New Testament time for various cleansing ceremonies within the Jewish faith, so the, the, the apostles didn't invent baptism. John the Baptist was baptizing before Jesus came along and gave his mandate. Um, so it, in... Uh, we hear these words in Acts 22, and this is from Saul of Tarsus being blinded on the, on the road to Damascus, and then he's sent to a man named Ananias who preaches to him, leads him to Christ, and then Ananias says this to the self-righteous Pharisee Paul. He says, what are you waiting for? 
Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, Peter's previous words, and that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. Baptism is the bath you take in front of an audience. It's really a proclamation of need. It's an unusual bath. It's meant to come with a lifetime warranty because it's meant to represent a cleansed for life reality that we have, are placing our faith in. What do I mean by that? Because it's kind of a prophetic statement. What do I mean by that? Jesus comes along, and John says the kingdom is at hand. Jesus says the kingdom is here, but we know the kingdom is still also coming. It's, it's, it's a reality now, but it's a, there's a future fulfillment that's far more complete. And so we're in this in-between. It's similar with what we uh, remember from our baptism. That spiritually speaking, speaking we've made, been made right with God. We've been cleansed from our sins. We, we have the right to be called sons of God. But that we're cleansed for a life reality that we're growing into. There's a future reality, an identity that will be completed that's really our hope. You know, I made the little joke already about that couple's cruise. Noah and his children went on with two of every animal. Would have smelled pretty bad in there. But after that story's done, when God has washed through a flood the earth, Noah and his family come out eventually, and they, they give up a sacrifice. And there's this beautiful little line that I usually miss in chapter 8, verse 21 of Genesis. After Noah has given up the sacrifice to God, and the Lord was pleased, there's that idea again, with the sacrifice. And the Lord was pleased with the sacrifice. It's this, this scent coming up, and God breathes it in. And we can almost paraphrase it as, you guys smell great. All that done by faith in what Christ has done. We remember that in our baptism. But baptism is also becoming. I've been hinting about this already. Andy Hickford's a British Baptist author that was quoted in the book I read earlier this week. And he wrote this. Baptism offends our sense of self-sufficiency and demands we recalibrate on God's terms. Baptism is a rumor of another world which confronts our own. When we were baptized, we didn't just complete a baptismal task, but we entered into a baptismal life. I realize it's hard to differentiate between the things I said about belonging and citizenship, so if it sounds repetitive, just let it be repetitive. The important thing is what we can learn about baptism here. Uh, there's a Greek word, polis where we get our words politics, politician, police, all kinds of words. And, and, and think about it as our, our identity, the flag, our ethnic identity, tribal, whatever it is. And Baptist theologian Barry Harvey, he doesn't sugarcoat anything when he writes this. Baptism is the sign and seal of a person's induction into a new polis, a whole new reality. Marking the passage from death to life and the transfer of rulership and change of all allegiance from the powers of this world to the reign of God. Immersion into the baptismal waters divests, that like removes, washes away, takes away, divests us of all previous definitions of identity based on class, ethnic or national origin, gender and family ties. It quite literally strips off the old human being with its practices 
and clothes the one baptized with Christ's new humanity. That's from his book, Remembering the Body. And that's what we now are called to live out, that baptismal reality. Well, that's a lot, isn't it? (laughs) That's a lot said on that day that was maybe our big day or one that you're thinking of having. And here's what Dr. Davidson writes. I'm going to read it right out of the book. If we knew all this, we might never be baptized. But what we must understand is that all of these imperatives, all of these demands of radical discipleship and faithful baptismal living are made as an invitation to us to step into a life that is drenched in grace. We are empowered to do these things because we've encountered God's love for us and God's love for God's heartbreaking world. In our baptism, we express our desire to participate in God's liberating and loving action in the world. Do you see the distinction? We are not saying we will save the world. We would implode under such pressure as that. We are saying, though, that we desire to participate in God's saving of the world. And now she quotes a a conversation that she had with a person. In my baptism, I am making a public proclamation that I'm going to continuously deny self and continuously follow Christ, Kalia tells me. I am literally saying I cannot do that on my own. I'm relying on the Spirit's action, which is what brought me to my conversion and my baptism to begin with. I am relying on the Spirit to continue to empower me. We think back on that line I use with all of its rights, privileges, and obligations. So I don't know where you're at uh, in your own thoughts and thinking about baptism. Um, It's a big deal. It's a big statement. But for the grace of God, who, who would ever proclaim to, you know, be able to fulfill all of those things? Uh, in June 11th, we'll be up at Bob and Cass. They obviously have not only a beautiful big property, they've got a beautiful big pool. So the opportunity is available even coming up in June. If you were to say, you know what? Uh, what's, in the words of Ananias, what's keeping me from being baptized? We would love to talk to you about that. But for the rest of us, I want to remind you of the reality of your big day, that delightful day. Let's pray together. (laughs) Heavenly Father, there are big commitments that we make in life. Even covenants that we enter into, we think of one like marriage that are serious and um, important. And uh, we think of this beautiful rite of baptism that you've called for us. Lord, it it says so much, and I, I pray you'd forgive us for treating it as a task that we did once when we were younger or many years ago and haven't really thought about it in a long time. I pray that you would continue to remind us, grow us in that, in that reality, but with a future completion tension that we live in, that we would keep living baptismally as uh, your children in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us. For more information, 
please visit brooklynrbc.ca. The link is also in our bio. On behalf of the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn, we pray you have a blessed week.